welcome back to Nerdie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. It's October 24, 2021, and I'm recording this in Sydney. All Hallows' Eve, Halloween approaches, and tonight's read continues our spooky October theme. Tonight I am reading the opening three chapters of the gothic novella The Turn of the Screw by American-English classic author Henry James. He wrote it when he was 55 years old, in 1898 and its story of a young governess and the children in her care remains as chilling now as it did back then. Before I get to reading a quick bit of background about Henry James, he was a New Yorker, but he spent much of his childhood overseas, and eventually he settled in England, even becoming an English citizen. He is famed for his novels, The Portrait of a Lady, the Bostonians, and Daisy Miller, and others, and he was nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature several times, never winning, however. His works have often been called transatlantic, focusing, as some did, on wealthy Americans travelling around Europe. But his gothic horror work, The Turn of the Screw, is the work that has had the most adaptations because the story is so darned immersive. Henry James was a friend of Dickens and George Eliot and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. He knew Zola and Guy de Maupassant. He was hugely connected and thoroughly celibate. No marriage, no kids. And he treated his readers as if they were as skilled at comprehension as he was. The Turn of the Screw is the story of a young governess in London who is hired by a man to look after his niece and nephew, Flora and Miles, at a grand English country house named Bly. The fellow doesn't want to be disturbed by anything about the house or the kids. So there, at Bly, we find just the housekeeper, Mrs Grose, the young governess, whose name we never learn, and the children, Flora and Miles. Or could there be others there as well? Well, that's the point of the story, but no spoilers. Let's just let Henry James cleverly set it all out for us. Let's begin. The story had held us round the fire, sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as on Christmas Eve in an old house a strange tale should essentially be, I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. The case, I may mention, was that of an apparition in just such an old house as had gathered us for the occasion, an appearance of a dreadful kind to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in the terror of it, waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself 
the same sight that had shaken him. It was this observation that drew from Douglas, not immediately but later in the evening, a reply that had the interesting consequence to which I call attention. Someone else had a story, not particularly effective, which I saw he was not following. This I took for a sign that he had himself something to produce and that we should only have to wait. We waited, in fact, till two nights later, but that same evening before we scattered, he brought out what was in his mind. I quite agree, in regard to Griffin's ghost, or whatever it was, that its appearing first to the little boy, at so tender an age, adds a particular touch. But it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? We say, of course, somebody exclaimed, we want to hear about them. He turned round to the fire, gave a kick to a log, watched it an instant. Then he faced us again. I can't begin. I shall have to send to town. There was a unanimous groan at this and much reproach, after which, in his preoccupied way, he explained, The story is written. It's in a locked drawer. It has not been out for years. I could write to my man and enclose the key. He could send down the packet as he finds it. And is the record yours? You took the thing down? A woman's. She has been dead these twenty years. She sent me the pages in question before she died. She was my sister's governess. She was the most agreeable woman I've ever known in her position. I liked her extremely and am glad to this day to think she liked me too. If she hadn't, she wouldn't have told me. She had never told anyone. You'll easily judge why when you hear. The narrative he had promised to read us really required for a proper intelligence a few words of prologue. The fact to be in possession of was therefore that his old friend, the youngest of several daughters of a poor country parson, had at the age of twenty, on taking service for the first time in the schoolroom, come up to London to answer in person an advertisement that had already placed her in brief correspondence with the advertiser. This person proved, on her presenting herself for judgment at a house in Harley Street that impressed her as vast and imposing, this prospective patron proved a gentleman, bachelor in the prime of life, such a figure as had never arisen, save in a dream or an old novel, before a fluttered anxious girl out of a Hampshire vicarage. He was handsome and bold and pleasant, offhand and gay and kind. He struck her inevitably as gallant and splendid, but what took her most of all, and gave her the courage she afterwards showed, was that he put the whole thing to her as a kind of favour an obligation he should gratefully incur. She conceived him as rich. He had for his own town residence a big house, filled with the spoils of travel and the trophies of the chase. But it was to his country home, an old family place in Essex, that he wished her immediately to proceed. He had been left, by the death of their parents in India, guardian to a small nephew and a small niece children of a younger, a military brother, whom he had lost two years before. 
These children were, by the strangest of chances for a man in his position, a lone man without the right sort of experience or a grain of patience, very heavily on his hands. It had all been a great worry, and on his own part doubtless a series of blunders, but he immensely pitied the poor chicks and had done all he could. Had in particular sent them down to his other house, the proper place for them being, of course, the country, and kept them there from the first, with the best people he could find to look after them, parting even with his own servants to wait on them, and going down himself, whenever he might, to see how they were doing. The awkward thing was that they had practically no other relations, and that his own affairs took up all his time. He had put them in possession of Bly, which was healthy and secure, and had placed at the head of their little establishment an excellent woman, Mrs. Groes. She was now housekeeper, and was also acting for the time as superintendent to the little girl, of whom, without children of her own, she was, by good luck, extremely fond. There were plenty of people to help, but of course the young lady who should go down as governess would be in supreme authority. She would also have, in holidays, to look after the small boy who had been for a term at school, young as he was to be sent, but what else could be done, and who, as the holidays were about to begin, would be back from one day to the other. There had been for the two children at first a young lady whom they had had the misfortune to lose. She had done for them quite beautifully. She was a most respectable person, till her death, the great awkwardness of which had precisely left no alternative but the school for little miles. Mrs. Groves, since then, in the way of manners and things, had done as she could for Flora. But there were further a cook, a housemaid, a dairywoman, an old pony, an old groom, and an old gardener, all likewise thoroughly respectable. Meanwhile, of course, the prospect struck her, the young governess, as slightly grim. She was young, untried, nervous. It was a vision of serious duties and little company, of really great loneliness. She hesitated took a couple of days to consult and consider. But the salary offered much exceeded her modest measure, and on a second interview she faced the music she engaged. There were others who hadn't succumbed. He told her frankly all his difficulty, that for several applicants the conditions had been prohibitive. They were somehow simply afraid. It sounded dull, it sounded strange and all the more so because of his main condition, that she should never trouble him, but never, never, neither appeal nor complain nor write about anything, only meet all questions herself, receive all monies from his solicitor, take the whole thing over and let him alone. She promised to do this. She never saw him again. The next night, by the corner of the hearth, in the best chair, he opened the faded red cover of a thin, old-fashioned, gilt-edged album. He began to read with a fine clearness that was like a rendering to the ear of the beauty of his author's hand. 
I remember the whole beginning as a succession of flights and drops, a little seesaw of the right throbs and the wrong. After rising in town to meet his appeal, I had at all events a couple of very bad days. Found myself doubtful again. Felt indeed sure I had made a mistake. In this state of mind, I spent the long hours of bumping, swinging coach that carried me to the stopping place at which I was to be met by a vehicle from the house. This convenience, I was told, had been ordered, and I found, toward the close of the June afternoon, a commodious fly in waiting for me. Driving at that hour, on a lovely day, through a country to which the summer sweetness seemed to offer me a friendly welcome, my fortitude mounted afresh. I suppose I had expected, or had dreaded, something so melancholy that what greeted me was a good surprise. I remember, as a most pleasant impression, the broad, clear front, its open windows and fresh curtains, and the pair of maids looking out. I remember the lawn, and the bright flowers, and the crunch of my wheels on the gravel, and the clustered treetops over which the rooks circled and cawed in the golden sky. The scene had a greatness that made it a different affair from my own scant home, and there immediately appeared at the door, with a little girl in her hand, a civil person who dropped me as decent a curtsy as if I had been the mistress or a distinguished visitor. I had no drop again till the next day, for I was carried triumphantly through the following hours by my introduction to the younger of my pupils. The little girl who accompanied Mrs. Groves appeared to me on the spot a creature so charming as to make it a great fortune to have to do with her. She was the most beautiful child I had ever seen, and I afterward wondered that my employer had not told me more of her. I slept little that night. I was too much excited, and this astonished me too, I recollect, remained with me, adding to my sense of the liberality with which I was treated. It was thrown in as well from the first moment that I should get on with Mrs. Groves in a relation over which, on my way in the coach, I fear I had rather brooded. The only thing indeed that in this early outlook might have made me shrink again was the clear circumstance of her being so glad to see me. I perceived within half an hour that she was so glad, stout, simple, plain, clean, wholesome woman, as to be positively on her guard against showing it too much. I wondered even then a little why she would not wish to show it, and that with reflection, with suspicion, might of course have made me uneasy. But it was a comfort that there could be no uneasiness in a connection with anything so beatific as the radiant image of my little girl, the vision of whose angelic beauty had probably more than anything else to do with the restlessness that, before morning, made me several times rise and wander about my room, to take in the whole picture and prospect, to watch from my open window the faint summer dawn, to look at such portions of the rest of the house as I could catch, and to listen while in the fading dusk the first birds began to twitter. There had been a moment when I believed I recognised faint and far the cry of a child. But these fancies were not marked enough not to be thrown off, and it was only in the light, in the gloom, I should rather say, 
of other and subsequent matters that they now come back to me. And the little boy, does he look like her? Is he too so very remarkable? Oh, miss, most remarkable, if you think well of this one, you will be carried away by the little gentleman. My other pupil, at any rate, as I understand, comes back tomorrow? Not tomorrow, Friday, miss. He arrives, as you did, by the coach, under care of the guard, and is to be met by the same carriage. I forthwith expressed that the proper, as well as the pleasant and friendly thing, would therefore be that on the arrival of the public conveyance, I should be in waiting for him with his little sister. An idea in which Mrs. Groves concurred so heartily that I somehow took her manner as a kind of comforting pledge that we should, on every question, be quite as one. Oh, she was glad I was there. What I felt the next day was, I suppose, nothing that could be fairly called a reaction from the cheer of my arrival. It was probably, at the most, only a slight oppression produced by a fuller measure of the scale as I walked around them, gazed up at them, took them in, of my new circumstances. They had, as it were, an extent and mass for which I had not been prepared, and in the presence of which I found myself freshly a little scared as well as a little proud. Lessons in this agitation certainly suffered some delay. I reflected that my first duty was, by the gentlest arts I could contrive, to win the child into the sense of knowing me. I spent the day with her out of doors. I arranged with her, to her great satisfaction, that it should be she, she only, who might show me the place. She showed it, step by step, and room by room, and secret by secret, with droll, delightful, childish talk about it, and with the result, in half an hour, of our becoming immense friends. Young as she was, I was struck, throughout our little tour, with her confidence and courage with the way, in empty chambers and dull corridors, on crooked staircases that made me pause, and even on the summit of an old square tower that made me dizzy, her morning music, her disposition to tell me so many more things than she asked, rang out and led me on. I have not seen Bly since the day I left it, and I dare say that to my older and more informed eyes it would now appear sufficiently contracted. But as my little conductress, with her hair of gold and her frock of blue, danced before me round corners and pattered down passages, I had the view of a castle of romance inhabited by a rosy sprite. No, it was a big, ugly, antique but convenient house, embodying a few features of a building still older, in which I had the fancy of our being almost as lost as a handful of passengers in a great drifting ship. Well, I was, strangely, at the helm. This came home to me when two days later I drove over with Flora to meet, as Mrs. Groves said, the little gentleman. And all the more for an incident that, presenting itself the second evening, had deeply disconcerted me. The first day had been, on the whole, as I have expressed, reassuring, but I was to see it wind up in keen apprehension. 
the post bag that evening, it came late, contained a letter for me, which, however, in the hand of my employer, I found to be composed but of a few words, enclosing another addressed to himself, with a seal still unbroken. Mrs. Groves said, This I recognise. It's from the headmaster, and the headmaster's an awful bore. Read him, please. Deal with him. But mind you don't report. Not a word. I'm off. I broke the seal with a great effort, so great a one that I was a long time coming to it, took the unopened missive at last up to my room, and only attacked it just before going to bed. I had better have let it wait till morning, for it gave me a second sleepless night. With no counsel to take, the next day I was full of distress, and it finally got so the better of me that I determined to open myself at least to Mrs. Groves. What does it mean? The child's dismissed his school. She gave me a look that I remarked at the moment, then visibly, with a quick blankness, seemed to try to take it back. But aren't they all sent home? Yes, but only for the holidays. Miles may never go back at all. They won't take him? They absolutely decline. This she raised her eyes, which she had turned from me. I saw them fill with good tears. What has he done? I hesitated. Then I judged best simply to hand her the letter which, however, had the effect of making her, without taking it, simply put her hands behind her. She shook her head, sadly. Such things are not for me, miss. My counsellor couldn't read. I winced at my mistake, which I attenuated as I could, and opened the letter again to repeat it to her. Then, faltering in the act, and folding it up once more, I put it back in my pocket. Is he really bad. The tears were still in her eyes. Do the gentlemen say so? They go into no particulars. They simply express their regret that it should be impossible to keep him. That can have only one meaning. Mrs. Groves listened with dumb emotion. She forbore to ask me what this meaning might be, so that presently, to put the thing into some coherence, and with the mere aid of her presence to my own mind, I went on, that he is an injury to the others. At this, with one of the quick turns of simple folk, she suddenly flamed up. Master Miles, him an injury! There was such a flood of good faith in that, though I had not yet seen the child, my very fears made me jump to the absurdity of the idea. It's too dreadful, cried Mrs. Groves, to say such cruel things. Why, he's scarce ten years old. See him, miss, first, then believe it. I felt forth with a new impatience to see him. It was the beginning of a curiosity that for all the next hours was to deepen almost to pain. Mrs. Groves was aware, I could judge, of what she had produced in me, and she followed it up with assurance. You might as well believe it of the little lady. Bless her, she said the next moment. Look at her. I turned and saw that Flora, whom ten minutes before I had established in the schoolroom, now presented herself to view at the open door. 
I needed nothing more than this to feel the full force of Mrs. Groza's comparison, and catching my pupil in my arms, covered her with kisses. The rest of the day I watched for further occasion to approach my colleague, especially as, toward evening, I began to fancy she rather sought to avoid me. I overtook her, I remember, on the staircase. We went down together, and at the bottom I detained her, holding her there with a hand on her arm. I take what you said to me at noon as a declaration that you've never known him to be bad. She threw her head back. She had clearly, by this time, and very honestly, adopted an attitude. Oh, never known him. I don't pretend that. Then you have known him? I was upset again. Yes, indeed, miss, thank God. On reflection, I accepted this. You mean that a boy who never is, is no boy for me? I held her tighter. You like them with the spirit to be naughty? Then, keeping pace with her answer, so do I, I eagerly brought out. But not to the degree to contaminate, to corrupt. She stared, taking my meaning in. But it produced in her an odd laugh. Are you afraid he'll corrupt you? She put the question with such a fine, bold humour that, with a laugh, a little silly, doubtless, to match her own, I gave way for the time to the apprehension of ridicule. But the next day, as the hour for my drive approached, I cropped up in another place. What was the lady who was here before? The last governess. Oh, she was also young and pretty. Almost as young and almost as pretty, miss, even as you. Ah, then, I hope her youth and her beauty helped her, I recollect throwing off. He seems to like us young and pretty. Oh, he did, Mrs. Groza assented. It was the way he liked everyone. She had no sooner spoken indeed than she caught herself up. I mean, that's his way, the master's. Well, I was struck. But of whom did you speak first? She looked blank, but she coloured. Why, of him? Of the master? Of who else? There was so obviously no one else that the next moment I had lost my impression of her having accidentally said more than she meant, and I merely asked what I wanted to know. Did she see anything in the boy that wasn't right? She never told me. I had a scruple, but I overcame it. Was she careful, particular? Mrs. Groves appeared to try to be conscientious. About some things, yes. But not about all. Again, she considered. Well, miss, she's gone. I won't tell tales. I quite understand your feeling, I hastened to reply. Did she die here? No, she went off. I don't know what there was in this brevity of Mrs. Groza's that struck me as ambiguous. Went off to die? She was taken ill, you mean, and went home? She was not taken ill, so far as appeared in this house. She left it, at the end of the year, to go home, as she said, for a short holiday, to which the time she had put in had certainly given her a right. We had then a young woman, a nursemaid who had stayed on, and who was a good girl and clever, and she took the children all together for the interval. 
but our young lady never came back, and at the very moment I was expecting her, I heard from the master that she was dead. I turned this over. But of what, Mrs. Groves? He never told me. But please, miss, said Mrs. Groves, I must get about my work. We met after I had brought home little Miles. So monstrous was I then ready to pronounce it that such a child as had now been revealed to me should be under an interdict. I was a little late on the scene, and I felt as he stood wistfully looking out for me before the door of the inn at which the coach had put him down, that I had seen him on the instance, without and within, in the great glow of freshness, the same positive fragrance of purity in which I had, from the first moment, seen his little sister. He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Groves had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. His indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love. It would have been impossible to carry a bad name with a greater sweetness of innocence, and by the time I had got back to Bly with him, I remained merely bewildered. So far, that is, as I was not outraged by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room, in a drawer. As soon as I could compass a private word with Mrs. Groves, I declared to her that it was grotesque. She promptly understood me. You mean the cruel charge? Oh, it doesn't live an instant. My dear woman, look at him! She smiled at my pretension to have discovered his charm. I assure you, miss, I do nothing else. What will you say, then? She immediately added. Oh, in answer to the letter, nothing. I had made up my mind. And to his uncle? I was incisive. Nothing. And to the boy himself? Nothing. She gave her apron a great wipe to her mouth. Then I'll stand by you. We'll see it out. We'll see it out, I ardently echoed, giving her my hand to make it a vow. This, at all events, was for the time. What I look back at with amazement is the situation I accepted. I was lifted aloft on a great wave of infatuation and pity. I am unable even to remember at this day what proposal I framed for the end of his holidays and the resumption of his studies. In the first weeks, the days were long. They often, at their finest, gave me what I used to call my own hour, the hour when, for my pupils, tea-time and bedtime having come and gone, I had, before my final retirement, a small interval alone. Much as I liked my companions, this hour was the thing in the day I liked most. And I liked it best of all when, as the light faded, or rather I should say, the day lingered and the last calls of the last birds sounded in a flush sky from the old trees, I could take a turn into the grounds and enjoy, almost with a sense of property that amused and flattered me, the beauty and dignity of the place. It was a pleasure at these moments to feel myself tranquil and justified, 
doubtless perhaps also to reflect that by my discretion, my quiet good sense and general high propriety, I was giving pleasure. It was plump one afternoon, in the middle of my very hour, the children were tucked away and I had come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with me in these wanderings, was that it would be as charming as a charming story suddenly to meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of the path and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. I only asked that he should know, and that the only way to be sure he knew would be to see it in his handsome face. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was, when, on the first of these occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short coming into view of the house. What arrested me on the spot, and with a shock much greater than any vision had allowed for, was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand there, but high up, beyond the lawn, and at the very top of the tower to which on that first morning little Flora had conducted me. It produced in me this figure in the clear twilight, I remember two distinct gasps of emotion, which were sharply the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man, in a lonely place, is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred. And the figure that faced me was, a few more seconds assured me, as little anyone else I knew as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had, on the instant, become a solitude. To me, at least, making my statement here with the deliberation with which I have never made it, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if... While I took in what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again as I write the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost for a minute all its voice. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself, with intensity, who then he was, and to feel as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants more became intense. I caught it a dozen possibilities, none of which made a difference for the better that I could see, in their having been in the house, and for how long, above all, a person of whom I was in ignorance. 
my office demanded that there should be no such ignorance and no such person. This visitant seemed to fix me from his position with just the question, just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. We were too far apart to call to each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us, breaking the hush, would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was in one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him, as I see the letters I form on this page. Then, exactly after a minute, as if to add to the spectacle, he slowly changed his place. Passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still markedly fixed me. He turned away. That was all I knew. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. The opening of a gothic horror novella that I hope you check out in its entirety. We've had the angelic children, the strange expulsion from school, And now, the appearance of someone who is not on the inventory of people who are meant to be at Bly. Spooky as. There are films of the story of The Turn of the Screw, and Netflix has even recently made The Haunting of Bly Manor as a series. So for those of you who are visual, you can check them out. But the written classic is a great work. It seems to envelop you as you hear the words or read the words, in a growing gloom, thoroughly recommend as a spooky October read. Okay, I'll be back on Thursday, 9pm Sydney time, with something offbeat, and I wish you all a great, great week. Will you be carving pumpkins this week? I hope so. Me, I'm going to have a play at some All Hallows Eve cocktails. But whatever you get up to, I hope you keep it spooky. And just before I go, I want to say welcome to new listeners in Luxembourg. Willkommen. It's great to have you aboard. And thank you to new people who have left reviews on Apple. Much appreciated. Till next time, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.